I'm feeling unusually burdened today. <laughs> you know, right after 9-11 occurred, the day after, in fact, a retired fireman by the name of Frank Salicha was in search for any survivors. He was making his way through the wreckage and the rubble. When all of a sudden it dawned on him, nobody, nobody could survive this. And he says it was like an emotional cloud just settled over him, a deep and dark heaviness. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, the sun shone through the dust and the smoke and highlighted two pieces of steel that had been twisted into this shape of a cross. This is an actual picture of what he found, what he saw. That picture then began to appear in many of the newspapers in New York. Many people identified it with the Christian cross. In the midst of that horrible tragedy, suddenly people began to feel some hope, began to have a sense of faith, began to have a sense of healing. One minister who observed people interacting with the cross saw some families who obviously had lost a loved one bringing some of their loved one's personal belongings and leaving them there at the cross. He said it was as though the cross was absorbing their loss and absorbing their pain. He said, I never felt more near to Jesus than in that moment. The cross was eventually taken out and was placed on a concrete monument where it stood for a while. Today, that cross now appears in the National Museum to the memory of those who lost their lives at 9-11 there at Ground Zero. The cross is a, an incredible symbol. It's very powerful. It's known around the world. And it's particularly powerful in the lives of those of us who call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. That's why I'd like you to take out that little cross that was uh, put in your worship folder. If you didn't get one after the service, please ask the ushers for one or go to our uh, uh, information desk and we'll get you one. I want you, I want you to take that little cross, pull it off, and I want you to put it in your hand for just a moment, if you will, please. And I want to ask you some questions. What does this cross mean to you? You know, a lot of people have a cross. They have it tattooed or they wear it around their neck or on a keychain and someplace else. And oftentimes you see celebrities and sports stars with their big crosses. But I'm not always sure we understand what the cross really means, what it really symbolizes. In fact, I am quite certain that some people, if they really came to grips with the meaning of the cross, would no longer be attracted to it, would be repelled by it. In fact, some people might even throw it away and say, if that's what the cross means, I don't want anything to do with it. Do you know what the cross means? That's what we're going to be discovering together over these next several weeks leading up to Easter. And so I want you to bring this back with you every weekend because we interact with it continuously. We ask ourselves, what does this mean? How does this change a person's life? Because this cross, not the piece of wood, okay, but what it represents has the power to transform our lives, even as the followers of Christ. In order to experience that transformation, there are some hurdles we have to get over. So for instance, this weekend, we want to talk about how the cross brings us freedom. But there's a problem in experiencing the freedom of the cross. You say, what's the problem? The problem is freedom. And you just said that. I know I just said that. That's my point. 
Freedom oftentimes gets in the way of experiencing the freedom of the cross. Say, what do you mean by that? What I mean is how one defines freedom can be a problem for freedom. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's take a definition uh, that the culture might use for freedom. This is how I think many people in modern society define freedom, whether it's here in Europe or someplace else. They would define freedom something along the lines as my ability to choose my course in life without interference and without sacrifice. Now, this freedom is my ability to live life on my terms and to live it that way without interference from anyone or any system or anything. And I'm entitled. I shouldn't have to sacrifice for that. I'm a victim, I'm this, I'm that. It should be a very free pathway toward freedom. Now, as nice as that definition may sound, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because there really is no such thing as freedom in and of itself. There are always going to be restrictions. And so the question really becomes, where can I find the greatest freedom? How many of you, uh, I'm sure, saw the movie uh, Frozen? Anybody here get dragged to that movie? All right. How many of you have children? Let me see your hands. Take your children, sing. Uh, it's the song, Let It Go, right? It's the famous song in Frozen, right? Well, I want to talk about that song for just a moment because that song really popularizes at face value how a lot of people feel and think about freedom. Now, if you love the movie Frozen, that's okay. I'm not here to tell you it's a bad movie, an evil movie. I'm not here to tell you that Elsa's the Antichrist, so don't, you know, don't get all worked up about this, all right? Don't send me emails, cards, or letters, okay? But I do want you to think about the lyrics to that song that she sings. Because if you take the lyrics at face value and you really believe those lyrics, well, it's problematic. Listen to what Elsa sings. She says, and I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to speak it. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I think it's kind of funny to think of a six or seven-year-old singing that song. Because <laughs> you just love it when they sing it, but you hate it when they actually believe it. Think about it again. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, I don't need you to tell me about how she comes back around again. And so you think about what she said. That's kind of the mindset of the culture today. No right, no wrong, no rules. That's called anarchy. And in many ways, our culture in different places is on the verge of that at times, it seems, especially around the world these days. That kind of freedom doesn't work. You have to have rules. You have to have guidelines. There's no such thing as truly being free otherwise. And besides, and besides, when we tell ourselves we want to be free or we are free, we've just switched cheerleaders. So what do you mean by that? Well, think about this. When a person says, I want no rules, no right, no wrong, really what we're saying is, I don't want the standards that have been imposed on me by my parents or by my church 
or by a political system or by an economic system or by an educational system. I, I, I'm tired of all of that and I'm giving it up. Woo, I'm free. And I go shopping. And I go shopping for what I think will give me my freedom. So I shop for a certain career. Well, I've had that career, they'll give me status. People will be impressed with me. We shop for a salary. Boy, if I have that salary, I'll be able to do this, I'll be able to do that. We shop for the right wife, the right wife, the right husband, the right boyfriend, the right girlfriend. We shop for the right looks, whatever that may cost us, surgery or procedures or whatever it is. We, we shop to live in the right home, the right uh, suburb. We, we shop to drive the right car. We shop to wear the right clothes. We shop to get the right tattoo. And then we take a selfie of ourselves we post it on Facebook, and we want to know how many people like the new me. And if nobody likes the new me, I go shopping for something else. And what we end up doing is we end up stuffing a whole bunch of stuff into our backpack of life, lugging it around, saying, look how free I am, when all we've simply done is switch cheerleaders. I got tired of pleasing these people, so I think I have freedom now because I have a new audience that I'm pleasing. And now I've got to keep up. I've got to make sure I keep doing all the right things to keep pleasing that audience because this always comes back to identity, image. I want to be accepted. We become a brand in and of ourselves. I've got to brand myself to be accepted, to be liked. And I tell you what, it leads to stress, it leads to anxiety, it leads to pressure, it leads to burdens doesn't work out so well. <laughs> Jesus says you're going to serve a master in your life at some point. Bob Dylan, since we're talking about characters and songs, wrote a song where he said, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> I was reading a psychiatrist from Harvard, not a Christian, not a believer at all, and he said the idea that one can be truly free and free of any influence and truly free of ever trying to please anybody, he said it's pure fantasy. It doesn't exist. Our very identity comes from the audience, whoever they may be. We just are always choosing who that audience is going to be. And even then, it's sometimes very hard to make that choice. Besides, think about this. If such freedom were possible, you would never experience love. Frances Sagan was a French playwright, novelist, very chic in her own time. When she turned 50 years of age, a journalist asked her, Francois, have you, ex have you found freedom? Have, have you really attained freedom in your life? And she thought about it for a while and she said, only when I've not been in love. Only when I've not been in love. And she was absolutely right. Because when you're in love, you have to sacrifice. When you're in love, you have to make room for another person. When you're in love, it's not your rights only, it's the rights of the other person as well. By the way, in 2004, she died at the age of 69. 
She'd been married several times and divorced. She'd been in and out of relationships with men and with women. She'd been addicted to alcohol and to drugs. Died very unhealthy, died very lonely. That does not sound like freedom to me. And Jesus says, you have to choose which master you're going to serve. So true freedom, where can it be found? Well, I want to suggest to you that true freedom can only be found when we return to our creator. It can only be found in God. And that's what upset the Apostle Paul so much in the book of Galatians. So I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 for a few moments. Because as he went through what we think of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, he was planting churches. And these new churches and new Christians were coming along. And then there are these other people who are following after Paul and coming to these places, and they were, they were basically stealing away the freedom that Christ was bringing to these folks. And while you're turning there, let me just give credit uh, for the resources I'm using to help out during this series. I'm relying on John Stott, who wrote a great book on the cross, Tim Keller and his writings, and several others who put a little bibliography together at the end if you want to read some of those writings. Okay, you're in Galatians chapter five. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. He says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, remember the Jews said that every male needed to be circumcised according to the law in order to be accepted by God. He says, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, in chapter 2, verse 12, he tells us who the agitators are, the party of the circumcision. There were men who were coming, when Paul would leave a town in a new church, they would come into that church and would say, look, to be a real Christian, if you're a male, get circumcised, and you have to keep the law and all his rules and all his regulations and have Jesus, then you're complete. And Paul's so angry at these men that he says, look, if circumcision is what makes you right with God, then you need to castrate yourself. I mean, go the whole way. He goes, that's what I wish they would do to themselves. He's not very happy. And here's why he's not happy. Look at verse 13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You're called to be free. Why are you going back to slavery again? Why do you think that it's acts of righteousness, your personal righteousness, your, your goodness, your good works, why do you think that you need to present that to God to be accepted by God? Look at all the rules I kept this week, God. Look at how good I'm living. Look how much better I am than my neighbor. Why do you think that? That's slavery, he says. Instead, you have received righteousness as a gift from God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't. You'll never deserve it. It's a gift that he's given to you, and it's come at the expense of the cross, he says. So why are you going backwards? And oh, by the way, he says, make sure you use your freedoms to honor and please God, not to indulge your flesh. In other words, you haven't been made free so you can go out and just sin. You've been made free so you can serve God. By the way, by the way, if you truly have experienced freedom, one of the things you're going to discover is that you're going to become a more generous person. That's always a sign of freedom, spiritual freedom. Become generous. Another sign of freedom is you worry less. You have far more peace in your life. You have less anxiety and less stress in your life. 
Because you're not trying to serve two masters. You're only serving one master. And that master said, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But I look around at so many Christians today, and I don't see them with much rest. I see huge bags under their eyes, mine included sometimes, weary, stressed out, anxious. Why? Even though we know the message of the cross, by default, our nature is to still think we have to somehow earn it. Or worse than that, we still think that in order to be free, I need to have people approve of me. It's not so mad, it doesn't matter so much what God thinks of me, but really, I, I, I need my peers to think of me in the right way. What a heavy load to have to bear and to have to carry. So how do I appropriate that freedom then? Well, if you're going to really experience the freedom of God, then you have to be willing to do what Keller says. Tim Keller says, you've got to be willing to be offended by the cross. That's what Paul says. What does it mean to be offended by the cross? I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. A very, very important passage of Scripture that's very relevant to where we are today in our culture. And if you're parents, I encourage you to turn here and mark this verse well, these verses well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross is either going to be foolish to you or powerful to you. He says, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate Okay, we're already being told by Paul, intelligent, so-called intelligent people are going to have a hard time with the cross. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What does Paul mean by that? Paul, in essence, is saying, like he said to the Corinthians of their day, and he's saying to us, people who call themselves intellectuals, not all, okay, not all, but most who call themselves intellectuals, part of the intelligentsia, they find the cross offensive. Because the cross is a sign of weakness. In the Old Testament, God said in Deuteronomy, cursed is the man who hangs from a tree. The cross in Roman times was, was reserved for criminals. The citizen of Rome, it was almost impossible for them to be uh, uh, crucified. It was for the worst of the worst. It was the utter sign of weakness. So it's an offense to people who believe that we can, we can make ourselves and we can make life better with our isms. I mean, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount... The intelligentsia likes that message because that's Jesus in an ethic. That's Jesus in a philosophy. That's Jesus in a wisdom. But Jesus dying on a mount, that's offensive to me. That I need somebody to die for me? 
hey, we can make this thing better. Socialism, capitalism, monarchy, oligarchy, plutarchy, all of it's a bunch of malarkey. Republican, Democrat, independent. All of the philosophies, all of those ideologies isn't going to change the world and make the world better. And so when God comes along and says, none of that works, none of that matters, this is all that matters. You know, if you're a person that thinks that you can figure it out, we can figure it out, we can make it better, that, that offends us, that offends us. Not only does it offend us that way, it also offends common sense. The message of the cross offends common sense. The common sense that pervades society today is, you know, if we could just get rid of all of uh, the bad people, wouldn't life be better? Now, the question is, who's going to decide who's bad, right? If we got rid of all the criminals, all the illegals, if we got rid of certain political parties, careful, if we got rid of certain leaders, if we got rid of certain philosophies, if we got rid of certain religions, if we got rid of certain kinds of bigoted individuals, you know, and, and we put them all someplace else, then finally things would be better. And God comes along and he says, no, it won't be better. Do you know why it won't be better? Because God says the problem is all of humanity has an evil and a wicked heart. Doesn't matter whether you're at the top or at the bottom, intelligent or not intelligent white collar, blue collar, gray collar, doesn't matter. God says, you're all evil and you're all wicked. Now, I don't know about you, you may feel a little offended by that, but listen to what he said in the book of Isaiah. God said, all of us, whole human race, have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts, all our attempts, all our isms are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Paul picks up this in Romans 3 and he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Socialist capitalist, doesn't matter. It's democracy. See, a lot of those systems, listen, a lot of the systems would work if the people behind the systems had the purest, most upright motives. That's why democracy is doomed to fail because, because no matter what you base it on, eventually people who are sinful and wicked begin to run the system. It's amazing we've lasted this long, if you think about it. Let me give you an illustration. So, Kyle, you might help me out, and, and uh, Scott, you want to help me out, and oh, Marsha, come up here and help me out, my, my wife, Marsha, all right? And uh, Kyle, put you on the end, Marsha in the middle. Scott, come over here next to me, will you please? Now, I'm gonna, let's imagine the three of them are going to swim from Los Angeles to Hawaii, about 2,558 miles away, okay? And let's imagine Scott has had one swimming lesson, right? Marsha has had swimming lessons as a kid. She swam in junior high, so she swam in high school. And Kyle is our Olympic long distance gold medalist swimmer, okay? Now, their job is to swim 2,558 miles away. So how far do you think Scott is going to get with one swimming lesson? 
He can float, all right? He's only going to be able to float so long, okay? Maybe he can get 10 yards, 10 feet flailing away. Maybe 100 feet is lucky, but I got to roll the boat up and haul him in, right? How about Marcia? I mean, she's taken swimming. She loves to swim. How far might she get? A couple miles? But she's going to fall short and have to haul her into the boat. Then we come to Kyle, our Olympic swimmer. Now, the record, all right, uh, the record swim without flippers, all right, in open water is 139 miles. So maybe he makes 140 miles because he's an overachiever, all right? He makes 140 miles. That is still far short of Honolulu, 2,558 miles away. I'm going to have to haul him in. In that sense, it doesn't matter how bad or how good a swimmer I've got. They all are going to fail. They're all going to sink. They're all going to die. Does not matter how bad a person I am. Doesn't matter how good a person I am. God says, Honolulu is perfection. You got to make it there. And none of us can. Therefore, all of us, God says, all of us, no matter who you are, what label you wear, all of us are wicked and evil because we're not perfect. Give it up for them. Thank you. All right. So all of us are wicked and all of us are evil. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus. May I never boast of my righteousness. May I never boast of my degree. May I never boast of what political party I'm from. May I never boast of my income. May I never boast in any of that stuff, he says. May I never boast in it except in the cross to which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, I don't need the world. I don't need the world. I just need the cross. I just need Christ on the cross. Now, the circumcision or uncircumcision means anything to me, he says. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. Now, as Paul says, when it's all said and done, all that matters to me is who Jesus is and what he did on this cross. This, he says, is where I find emancipation. Because I don't deserve this. I can't earn this. It's not based on my looks. It's not based on my income. It's not based on my abilities. It's not based on my degree. It's not based on the color of my skin. It's not based on what country I was born in, what language I speak in. It's not based on any other thing other than God's love. God freely gave himself. So the question is, do I want to yield and surrender to, to God as my master? Or do I want to just walk around trying to be my own master, trying to please a billion other gods, trying to fit in, trying to, trying to live a way that will make me acceptable? I don't know about you, but it's time for me to get rid of this pack. I'm tired of wearing, wearing this thing. It's heavy. I'm going to hand it over to the Lord. I'm done with it. Instead, what I want is the freedom. The freedom that he alone and only he can bring into my life. Do you know that freedom? Have you released your burden? What does it mean to make Jesus the Lord of my life? To let him be the Lord of my life? If you look up lordship in its non-spiritual form, it refers to the person's power over other people and their territory. 
Everybody here has territory. Your job, your children, your friends, your possessions. Am I willing to come to the cross and give the territory to Jesus, give myself to Jesus, be free of it? It means to let him control my whole life, every, every aspect of my life. I ask him, is this your will? If he says it's not my will, and I know what his will is, his will is in his word, then I don't pursue it, I don't do it, I give it up. Is this how you want me to raise my family? Is this what you want us to do? God, am I, are we putting you first right now? Because there's a lot of competition out there for first place in your life. And many of you who are families, many of you are raising kids, and I feel for you, I feel for you in this day and age. There are so many voices competing to be first in your life. Some of you are not even first in your own kids' lives. Sports is first. Academics is first. Your income, your career is first. And you're weary and you're tired. God says, would you just let me be first? Let me, let me lay your life out because life is not about your will. Life is about my will. That's where the cross becomes offensive to us. Whose approval are you seeking in life? The culture's approval, your peers' approval, your parents' approval, your neighbor's approval, or God's approval? What's God's approval based on? God's approval of you is based on the fact that he just chooses to love you. And that's really hard for us, especially those of us who are achievers. It's really hard for us because we think we gotta do something to get that approval. And God says, no. And we accept that on Sunday, but Monday we wake up right away trying to achieve. But achieve for whose glory? My glory or God's glory? What do you think of that little cross that you're holding in your hands right now? You still like it? You still want to wear it? You still want it to be part of your life? Because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. I struggle with lordship. Marsha and I struggle with lordship. One of the areas that we struggle with a ton is our family, our children, our grandchildren. You hear me talk about them often. It's obvious we really love and care very dearly for them, but they're, they're so far away, Texas and then Austria. And we wish they were in a five-mile radius. We wish we could have more. We wish we could do more things with them. But you know what? We come to the cross and we hand that territory over to the Lord. He, they belong to him. It's not, it's not what our will should be for their lives. It's what God's will should be for their lives. And we let him have control of that. What is it that you may need to place at the foot of the cross right now? What do you need to give up controlling? What do you need to surrender to the Lord? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. And we have mixed feelings perhaps this morning, about the cross. On the one hand, Father, we love the message of the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We are saved by the grace of God. But Lord, on the other hand, we struggle with the message of the cross because the cross demands our all. You gave your all, so you ask us to surrender our all. Father, the cross means 
literally giving you our lives and living by your direction and not our own. It means pleasing you and not pleasing the culture around us. It means submitting to your will and not to our own. It means living for others and for you and not for ourselves. And that's hard, God. We just made it hard. We all have plans, Father. We all have schemes. We all have ideas. Today, Lord, are we willing to surrender, to surrender it all at the foot of the cross and live in the freedom that comes from knowing we're forgiven, the freedom that comes from knowing we've been made acceptable, and the freedom of knowing, Father, that you have a purpose for our life to glorify you.